take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 25, 1 through 12. Three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. The chief priest and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. And he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days. He went down to Caesarea. And on the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the laws of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word. Thanks that we follow you, not because we understand in part, but we understand imperfect because your word is perfect. We thank you for our pastor. We thank you for the counsel that he gives us each Sunday. We pray today, Lord, that, that you will guide his lips and his heart as he would challenge us in your word to be ready to give a defense of the gospel that we know, and Lord, our prayer would be that our hearts would be open, that you would use him and you would use us to change the world even as you use Paul. This we pray for your glory, in Christ's name, amen. Amen, amen. Thank you, Pastor Al. He is risen, he's risen indeed. I threw you off, we usually don't say that unless, they, unless it's Easter, right? So, threw you off. Uh, as we find ourselves here near the end of the book of Acts, we find ourselves in lengthy narratives where Paul is getting the opportunity to defend his faith. And so yet again, he is put on trial. Yet again, it's been two years he's been imprisoned, and he's moved from one governor to the next governor, and he again is brought before them to give an account of what he believes. To defend our faith is something that we must do as well. Uh, we live in a, in a world of opposition where there's ethical and moral relativism that we need to defend against because we hold what is true. J.P. Moreland, he tells a story. He says, one afternoon I was sharing the gospel in a student's dorm room at the University of Vermont. The student began to embrace ethical relativism. He says, whatever is true for you is true for you, and whatever is true for me is true for me. But no one should force his or her views on other people since everything is relative. Moreland says, 
I knew that if I allowed him to get away with this ethical relativism, there could be for him no such thing as real objective sin measured against the objective moral command of God and thus no need for a savior. I thanked the student for his time and I began to leave his dorm room. On the way out, I picked up a small stereo and started out the door with it. Hey, what are you doing? He shouted. I'm leaving your room and I'm taking your stereo. You can't do that. But Moreland said, I happen to think it's permissible to steal stereos if it will keep me to help a person's religious devotion. And I myself could use a stereo and listen to Christian music and that would help me in my morning devotions. Now, I would never try to force you to accept my moral beliefs in this regard because, as you've said, everything is relative. And we shouldn't force our ideas on others. But surely, you aren't going to force me on your belief that it's wrong to steal a stereo, are you? I love the story because there's a world out there and a culture out there that is trying to force down relativism down our throats. It's trying to tell us that there's no absolute truth, that what's right for me is right for me and what's wrong for you is wrong for you and let's just try to all get along and all, have, all try to just put, put those things aside and the truth is, is that we will be given uh, opportunity to defend our faith. And when we defend our faith, we defend what we hold to be true, not what we hold to be relative. So for those who confess Jesus Christ but yet still live as if, as if truth is relative, they're going against the very witness of what they say they hold true. And so here we have Paul yet again getting the opportunity to give his testimony, yet again to be a witness. And, and for many of us, you might be saying, man, this Acts book is... It's like a broken record, Jeff. It's like one chapter after next. Paul's doing the same thing in front of different people. And it might be true that our life is like a broken record. How many of you see the same people week in and week out? How many of you are put forth people day in and day out and given the opportunity to give an account for your faith, to defend your faith, to tell them what you believe and hold as true? Jesus foretold that his disciples would stand before governors and kings and give an account. And this is exactly what we see happening here with Paul. In Matthew chapter 10, 16 through 20, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you will say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. This is exactly where Paul is. And so as we jump ahead here to Acts chapter 26, we're going to read following where Pastor Al left off all the way through 26, Lord willing. And we see in verse 1 of chapter 26, So Agrippa, who was King Agrippa, said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. An interesting word there, defense. It's where we get the word apologetics from. It's to be able to give an intellectual defense of the truths that we claim in our faith in Christ. And so this is what Paul is given the opportunity to do, to defend what he holds to be true. He's not there to debate. He's not there to get into an argument. He's there to stand witness to what he holds true and how his life has shown that. We, too, are given the opportunity to be apologists. We are given the opportunity to defend our faith, and sometimes we make excuses of, well, I just don't know enough. 
I, I don't know if I could say that. I don't know if I'm articulate enough. And so we, we try to keep ourselves from feeling the, the need to do that because we will give ourselves an out. But we are all called to be an apologist. We're all called to defend our faith, especially in a culture that would tell you that truth is relative. Albert Muller says it this way, today as Christians, we will meet opposition and persecution and face accusations. We will stand on trial in the cultural courts of modernity and postmodernism. The high priest of the moral revolution will charge us with heresy and sedition. They will indict us for holding antiquated beliefs which oppose the new post-Christian status quo. Indeed, Western cultural views, Western culture views Christian dogma is diametrically opposed to its vision of progress. The question, therefore, is this. Are we, as God's people, willing to give an answer for the hope that is within us? 1 Peter 3.15. The question is, are we willing to defend our faith? Are we willing to speak up when we are accused of being against the movement of the culture? 1 Peter 3, 13-17. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Paul is put on trial. And he is given the opportunity and he takes the opportunity to give the hope that he has in Christ because he believes and he holds to the truth that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and he is risen from the grave. Amen? We sang songs about it just a minute ago. We sang a bunch of songs about the resurrection and that's why I started off with, he is risen. He is risen indeed. That's a true statement on our behalf. So we have to give an account of that every time we're given the opportunity. Why do you have such hope? I have hope because I believe in the Son of God who came and lived the perfect life that I can't live, who died the death that I should have died, who rose again on the third day, promising me that there is life everlasting. That is the hope. That is the defense. That is the truth that we stand on. So Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 through 7 and verse 14. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance that I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then also, then to all the prophets. Verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Again, Paul is given the opportunity to defend the truth to defend that Jesus Christ is who he said he was and he did what he said he would do as the scriptures had told. 
that he would die for the sins of his people and that he would rise on the third day in newness of life. We had a beautiful picture of that this morning in baptism, that we are fully immersed in Christ. We are dead to our sin and we are risen in newness of life. And so Paul gives his defense. As I said, Paul's not debating his faith. He's defending it. R.C. Sproul, he writes a book called Defending Your Faith. And he says, Calvin noted the distinction between proof and persuasion. Proof is objective and persuasion is subjective. People who are hostile to certain ideas may have those ideas proven to them, but in their bias, they refuse to be persuaded, even by soundest of arguments. Apologetics, for this reason, is not merely about winning an argument. It is about winning souls. The old aphorism rings true. People convinced against their will hold the same opinion still. As we are called to defend our faith, we are called to do it with gentleness and respect. We are called to stand on a truth that is not relative. We're called to stand on a truth that is, that is sound and objective. We are not to win arguments, but we're to win souls. We're to care more about the person whom we're talking to than winning that argument. And so Paul is a great example of this, where he stands in defense of the resurrection. First thing I like to see as we jump back into Acts chapter 25, starting in verse 13 through 27, our witness defends an indisputable resurrection. It's indisputable. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to need them. If you don't have a Bible, it should be a black hardback ESV somewhere near you. We've got a lot of Scripture to cover. So here we go, verse 13. And when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived in Caesarea and greeted Festus. Now just so you know, Bernice was his sister, and so that's gross. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I, went, when I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the, the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay. But on the next day took my seat at the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. And the accuser stood up and brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss of how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed, to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor. I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had not done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appeared, appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. 
but I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. There's a lot there, but as you can see, Festus doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what to do with Paul. He said, look, I put him on, I put him on trial, and I really found nothing wrong. I found no accusations, and now I'm asking you so you can help me try to decide what to even write Emperor Nero. This is early on in his reign before he went crazy and started killing all the Christians. But I don't even know what, what to write him in, in regards to Paul. Like, why is he even a prisoner? In verse 19, you see that this is the, disputable, the indisputable thing that's going on. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion, about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Listen, when the world looks at our witness and how we defend our faith, they are looking at it on the basis of who we say Jesus really is. And I don't mean with just our words and what we've been taught growing up in church. Who do we say Jesus is with our lives? Is Jesus really who we say he is, and does he really have authority to dictate how we live and how we speak and how we conduct ourselves? Because Paul here, he's saying this guy's alive. They're saying he's dead. They're disputing the matter. Chuck Colson, I don't know if you've heard about him. I was telling Jonathan Pig, and Jonathan Pig, being in his early 20s, had no idea who Chuck Colson was. So I had to do some explaining about Watergate, and uh, in case you don't know, uh, President Nixon had a lawyer named Chuck Colson and got into all kinds of trouble for uh, wiretapping and listening in during an election, which today seems like just normal politics to me. Uh, but he did go to jail for that. And while he was in jail, he gave his heart and life to Jesus Christ, was saved, got out of jail, and started a prison ministry. And he says this. Now, the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead then they proclaimed that truth they proclaimed that truth for 40 years never once denying it everyone was beaten tortured stoned and put in prison they would not have endured that if it weren't true watergate in boiled 12 of the most powerful men in the whole world and they couldn't keep alive for 3 weeks you're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Let me ask you, have you resolved to yourself the fact that the resurrection of Christ is an indisputable truth? Honestly. We're talking about a man who was dead, who is now alive. How often have you seen that in your life? Have you come to a point where it's an indisputable truth for you? Not folklore, not a story. It's an absolute truth that you're willing to hang your entire life on because it is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of eternity, Romans 10, 9 through 11, because if you confess through your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. An indisputable truth that we defend. Verse 10, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. 
Have you come to a point where it's an indisputable fact for you that Jesus Christ is alive? Have you put your hope and faith in him? Because if you have, you do have hope. 1 Thessalonians 4.14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. There is a resurrection and life, and no one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. Have you come to the point where it's an indisputable fact that Jesus Christ is alive? Do you believe it in your heart? You see, some people would like to come up with different options. Some believe it was a fraud. Some people believe it was fiction. But believers in Christ hold it as fact. The, the fact that some people think it was a fraud means that they believe in the swoon theory. You've heard of the swoon theory? That Jesus just passed out, really. He passed out and then came to later on and he moved that stone out of the way, feeling really rejuvenated after three days of rest, and uh, was able to do that. Maybe they believe that people hallucinated, that 500 people, in fact, hallucinated at the same time and saw Jesus walking around. You've got the stolen body theory. Oh, they, they stole the body, and they were able to keep that secret for 40 years. And then you've got some that just believe it was a hoax or fiction. Maybe they went to the wrong tomb, or maybe... These are just really good embellished stories by fishermen who caught fish that were this big, right? Or there's a fact that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a reality. That Jesus really did live a perfect life. That Jesus Christ really did die a death on a cross, was buried, and then rose again, appearing to many and if we take this as a fact, as truth, as a reality, then we have to lay our lives on it and defend it. We can't merely believe Jesus' resurrection as a reality and live as if his teachings are merely a recommendation. We are put on the witness stand. Our lives are looked at because of who we say Jesus is and how we live in accordance to his word. Have you come to the point where you think it's an indisputable fact? Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ can't be a relative truth based on emotions or opinions or circumstances. Second thing we see is our witness defends an incredible resurrection. Simply incredible. Picking up chapter 26, 1 through 11. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raise, raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in, uh, in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. 
And not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they had put to death, but they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even in foreign cities. Paul says, look, we have an opportunity to be a witness here, and I want you to know my former life, that I opposed the, the Christians. I wanted them to blaspheme. I wanted them to go against the truth of the resurrection, and I was willing to do whatever it took. I was going to hunt them down in other cities and put them on trial and have them killed, whatever I had to do, so that they would say that the resurrection isn't true. And he says, but it's still what we hold to as Jews. We have a hope in the resurrection. And he says, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? If God really is the author of life, if he really is omniscient and all-knowing, if he really is all the things that we say he is, why would it seem incredible that he could raise someone from the dead? Have you come to a point in your life where the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an indisputable truth and you don't find it incredible, you, you find it to be exactly in congruence with who Christ is, who God is, what he can do? Of course he can do it. So Acts 26.8, why is it thought incredible? The word incredible there indicates doubt. It indicates doubt, unbelief. So I've got several here. If God is who he is, then he can raise the dead. Look at these verses. You can write them down. Elijah raises a widow's son in 1 Kings 17, 17 through 24. In verse 21, then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he was revived. Elijah in 2 Kings 4, 18 through 37, when Elijah came into the house, he saw a child lying dead on the bed. So he went and he shut the door behind them, and two of them praying to the Lord. And he went up and he laid on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands, and he stretched himself upon him, and the flesh of the child became warm, came back to life. 2 Kings 13, 21, remarkable story in one verse. And a man was being buried, behold, and a Moderating band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elijah, he revived and stood to his feet. You think it's incredible that God can bring people back to life? Get into the New Testament, Luke 7, 11 through 17, Jesus raises a widow's son. Luke 8, 49 through 56, he heals Jairus' daughter. While he was still speaking, some of the rulers came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. He raised her from the dead. Child, arise. John chapter 11, Jesus raised Lazarus, and he says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Does it seem incredible to you that God can raise people from the, from the dead? When Jesus breathed his last in Matthew chapter 27, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they were into the, the holy city and appeared to many. You get into Acts, and you have Dorcas restored to life. You have Eutychus raised to life after falling out of the window. And Paul says this, Why do you think it's incredible? Why do you have doubt that God can raise people from the dead? He rose on the third day. It's an indisputable truth. Jeremiah 32, 27, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Church, is anything too hard for God? Do we believe that God can raise the dead? Do we believe in the hope of the resurrection? Do we believe that that is only through Jesus Christ because he has shown us that he rose on the third day? It's indisputable truth. We're put on the witness stand to defend. And so our last one is this. Our witness defends an impactful resurrection. There's an impact in the life of a believer. Let's pick up verse 12 there in, verse, in chapter 26. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than any sun that shone around me and shone who journeyed with me, and those who journeyed with me. And when he had fallen onto the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had, to help, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of the things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these change, chains. 
Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. What an impact the life and the witness of Paul was. It was, a con- it was a constant impact because he had been impacted by the resurrected king. He, again, gives his testimony. I was met by a bright light. He gave me a mission to do. I was forever changed by the resurrected Lord. The resurrection's impact has an impact of spiritual conviction. Verse 14, when, he had, when I had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. You might remember that all the way back at Easter. Acts chapter 9. That's how long ago it was. We were in Acts chapter 9. We talked about the conversion of Paul. And I referenced this leading ahead that, hey, it wasn't just this automatic one-time thing, but God had been prodding him and prodding him and prodding him and convicting him and convicting him and convicting him. And Jesus is like, how much longer are you going to kick against conviction? How much longer? Are you going to kick against the prodding of the goads? Now, the goads, as you might remember, are these slender sticks that are sharp in, and the farmer would goad the back of the ox to get him to go, and goad, goad, goad. And the ox would just get mad and kick back, and when he would kick back, he would suffer even more harm, sometimes damaging his leg and his, his hoof, you know, or whatever he has back there, and he would, he would suffer more pain. I have a question. Has the resurrection of Jesus Christ impacted you with conviction in such a way that maybe today, again, there's conviction in your life because you know that the decisions you're making and the life that you're living do not fall into accordance with God's word, but yet you're still kicking, kicking against conviction, kicking against the prodding. The second thing is the resurrection's impact on spiritual conformity. Look at verse 19 and 20 and 24. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God. Look at this part. Performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. You know what? It had such an impact that Paul was not disobedient to what God had called him to do. If we truly want to defend our faith and hold to the truth of the resurrection, then there will be conviction in our life that leads to repentance. We won't kick against it, but it will also lead us towards obedience in what God's called us to do. And so we will be conformed more and more into the image of God because we are following his word. And we will begin to repent, and then we will keep deeds that are according to repentance. There will be fruit of repentance in the life of believers. Verse 24. And he was saying these things in his defense. Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. The Greek word mad here is the word where we get maniac. The world, when we begin to defend our faith, this is, this is what they're going to say. You're out of your mind. You're a maniac. You're, you're not following in with what everyone else is doing. Why are, you, why are you crazy? Why are you holding to this? Why am I holding to it? 
because I believe it's true. It's indisputable. Jesus Christ rose from the grave and he rose to give me life and give it everlasting and so therefore I will not be disobedient to his call on my life but I will repent and I will seek to bear fruit in repentance and I will seek to live in a way that I can share that with others not debating truth but defending it because I hold to it and I want my life to be a witness of Jesus Christ and his resurrection power because he has filled me with his spirit and he has sealed me to a day where I will stand before him, not by my own works, but by his works and his works only. Church, do you want to defend your faith? Don't kick against the goads. Church, do you want to defend your faith? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. As R.C. Sproul says, if your faith is private, the faith you have is not a Christian faith because a Christian who trusts Christ is commanded to declare him before others. Let's declare the truth because the resurrection has an impact on our life for spirit, against spiritual complacency. Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I, except for these chains. I wish I could persuade you, but all I'm here to do is defend the truth. These are tragic words for King Agrippa. King Agrippa has the opportunity to respond to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and his resurrection power, and he says, I'm not... I'm not going to be persuaded. I'm not going to be changed. But you almost had me. You know, there's a lot of people who have grown up hearing about the truth of the resurrection. And according to their life, they're almost persuaded. Almost. And it has a damaging impact on being able to defend your faith if you're almost persuaded. I'm going to end with a quote from a book called Almost Christian. American young people are theoretically fine with the religious faith, but it does not concern them very much and is not durable enough to survive long after they graduate from high school. Since the religious and spiritual choices of American teenagers echo with astounding clarity the religious and spiritual choices of the adults who love them, lackadaisical faith is not young people's issues, but ours. Most teenagers are perfectly content with their religious worldviews. It's the churches that are rightly concerned. So we must assume that the solution lies not in beefing up congregational youth programs or making worship more cool and attractive, but in modeling the kind of mature, passionate faith we say we want young people to have. Let me ask you, does your life defend the faith? Is your life a witness of the model of the kind of mature, passionate faith you say you want young people to have? Or does it almost, almost persuade them? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do love you. And we thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life. We thank you that you have made a way for us to be brought back into a fellowship with you and your Father, and you've given us your spirit.
Father, I pray that our church individually and corporately would be a witness to the world in the way we defend our faith because we live in the truth of your resurrection. Father, if someone here today or listening does not know you, has not made that statement of faith, that they believe that you have been risen from the grave and put their hope and trust in you, Lord, I pray that they would do that today in a simple prayer, that they would surrender their life to you because you have all authority and our hope is only in you. Father, we thank you for your word in Christ's name. Amen. Will you stand? Will you respond?